Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. So today I'm going to be concluding the series I began a few weeks ago called the Holy Trifecta. I picked this kind of odd word out of the lexicon called trifecta, which comes from the racetrack, which some of you know it means the long shot bet of betting what horses are going to place uh, first, second, and third, win, place, and show. It's a long odds bet. But here's what I want to tell you. There's a surefire way of making a small fortune at the track. Here it is. Start with a large fortune. That'll do. Like the guy who went to the track with a, in a $75,000 Cadillac and came home in a $275,000 Greyhound bus. <laughs> so the holy trifecta, I'm pulling it out of 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and it says this, Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, and the greatest of these is love. You all know that. And uh, these are the foundations of our faith. And week one, we talked about hope floats. We had a look at hope and how important it was. And I think that's the starting place, the foundation, primarily because the scripture says that hope is the anchor of the soul. And where hope is deferred, the heart is made sick. And if we don't have hope, what do we have in this world, right? And then, then last week we talked about faith leaps, and it comes out of that hope. And I say faith leaps because what it is, is it's, that, it's not a step. Faith is a leap into the unknown, because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen or unknown. And this week, my message is entitled, Love Prevails, because the greatest of these is love. This is the first place finisher. So we're going to start right into this today. I'm going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. This is what it says. But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Now let me give you the context of this. Paul has just finished going through the gifts of the Spirit. He's talking about these incredibly powerful gifts that God gives to the church of healings and miracles and tongues and interpretation and prophecy and all these things. And then at the end of it, he says, but, 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 let me show you a more excellent way. Everybody say a more excellent way. And the more excellent way is love. And what we find out is that what Paul does after he gives us about the, all this topic about the gifts of the Spirit, and he says there's a more excellent way, and then he goes into 1 Corinthians 13, which we call the love chapter, don't we? And the only time we ever read it is at weddings. You know how that works? The preacher stands up there, love is patient, love is kind, he goes through all of this, and the bride and the groom are looking starry-eyed at each other, completely glazed over, they're not even listening, they think they can do all that. You're sitting in the pew going, it'll never work, there's no way they can do that, I know because I'm married and I can't do it. But that's actually not what he's talking about, he's not just talking about marriage, he's talking about this same topic of the gifts of the Spirit. So let's pick it up. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1 says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have faith so that I could remove mountains and do not have love, I am nothing. And though I bestow my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me 
nothing. So he goes back to these gifts of the Spirit, and he says, as wonderful as these things are, and they are wonderful, he says, if I do it without love, if I prophesy without love, I'm just a clanging cymbal and a sounding breath. I'm just a bunch of noise. And he says, if I do all of these things and I don't have love, not only am I doing nothing, I am nothing. And then if you keep on going, he goes through and he, then he talks about the 17-point the definition of love. Love is patient, love is kind. And he goes through all those points that you're familiar with. And at the very end, he says this, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, and love never fails. Say love never fails. Love never fails. And the, and, the, and the word that he uses there for love is an important word that you all know, and it's the word in the Greek language is what? What's the word for love? It's, a, it's agape. You all know that word. Now, there's other words for love, but the one he's using here that never fails is this one called agape love. And we need to take a moment and define it because he's not talking about romantic love. He's not talking about sexual love. He's not talking about culinary love. I love pizza. How about you? He is talking about agape love. Sometimes people call it divine love, but there's a better definition. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit obscure, but the, the better definition for agape love is unrequited love. Unrequited love is the kind of love that requires nothing in return, where you love someone or you love something and you don't expect anything in return because that is how God loved us first. It says that yet while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love for us and Christ died on the cross. He died for us even though we were sinners. Even though we may not give him anything in return, he still loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Is everybody going to receive that gift? Not necessarily. But he did it anyway. It was unrequited love. Love that didn't demand anything in return. Sometimes we use the expression here, unconditional love. Love that doesn't put any conditions, doesn't have any expectations. Love that is selfless, it's sacrificial, it's forgiving. And, and we struggle with that kind of love. You know dogs are a lot better at it than humans, right? I mean, you can leave your dog locked up in your house for 12 hours, you come home and it's wagging his tail, happy to see you. You know, if you ever want to test where, where love, you know, unconventional or unconditional love is, Here's what you do. Here's the test. You lock your wife and your dog in the trunk and leave them there for an hour. Come back an hour later. See which one is happy to see you. <laughs> Please don't do that. This, is, this was for demonstration purposes only to make a point. Please don't do this. So we have this thing called agape love, unconditional, unrequited love. And it is the thing that never fails. But let's talk about what it is that we're trying to overcome. What is it that we're trying to prevail over? So I'm going to take a moment to talk about the problem. This is what Jesus said. He described the last days in Matthew 24, and he said, In that day there will be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, and pestilences. How are we doing so far? Check, 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 check. And then he goes on and says, And many will be offended and hate one another, and the love of many will grow cold. How many feel like I just described our world, the world that we live in today? We look at these things. I mean, you just take this one, this one single one. I mean, yes, we have wars and rumors of wars, and yes, we just went through a, a pestilence, and yes, we have all of these natural disasters, but we look at these last ones where it says that people will hate each other and the love of many will grow cold, and that people will be offended with one another. 
Have you noticed how we live in this hypersensitive world and everybody's offended with everything? I mean, you cannot go on social media and somebody's not mad about something. You can't turn on the news and somebody's mad about something. You look at what's happening, everybody's offended with everything. It just amazes me how people are just so easily offended today. Do you know that, that I know you love me and, and you probably say nothing but good things about me. I, I get that about you. But you might be surprised to know that every single week I preach, every single week, somebody is offended by something. And here's what cracks me up. Uh, It doesn't matter what I'm preaching on. If I preach on love, they're offended. If I preach on forgiveness, they're offended. If I preach on mercy, they're offended. If I preach on grace, they're offended. They miss everything else I say, and they pick up one little random comment that I made, oh, and they're mad as anything. It's a good thing God gave me this personality disorder to be able to deal with this. <laughs> and that I don't really care what people think of me. It is coming so handy. You know, when I was younger, I had this pastor. He had, a, he had a normal build, but he had this huge stomach. He had one of those, you know, big pot bellies that was hard as rock, one of those suckers, you know, those things. And, and this is what he used to say. He used to stand up in front of the congregation. He'd say, this is not a pot belly. This is thick skin from pastoring for 20 years. <laughs> it's funny how that stuck in my mind. And so we look at the world today. People are so, so easily offended. The comedians, you've been following this, the comedians wonder if they're going to have a job anymore because you can't tell a joke anymore because someone, someone's going to get mad at you. Chris Rock found that out at the Oscars, right? He tells that joke about Will Smith's wife. And in front of millions of people, he walks right up on stage and sucker slaps them across the face. The world gasped at that moment. But you know what it did to me? It showed me that that's where our world has gone. The love of many will grow cold. Many will be offended and hate one another. And so this is the situation we're living. Oh, it doesn't help that we had two years of a pandemic where everybody woke up cranky every day. Did you notice that? Every day for two years they were cranky. They were mad before they even got out of bed and just mess up once. They're like, they're already at at nine, already ready to redline to 10 in the slightest provocation. Why is everybody so mad, for goodness sakes? But that's the problem. Let's talk about the answer because there is a more excellent way. And the scripture says that love never fails. Do we believe that? Do we believe that love never fails? Love is the remedy to what ails the human race. So I want to tell you a story, tremendous sort of in-house story. We have this great couple in our church. They go to the North End campus. Their names are Steve and Joanne. And they went to, and this is really, really present. They went to Ukraine for seven years as missionaries. And we supported them for those seven years. And uh, they came back with this report. It was a tremendous report. But, I mean, it was tough. They said before the war... You know, that people in Ukraine were not kind of loving each other and taking care of each other. And they went just to bring the love of Christ to this this country. And what they ended up migrating towards, you never know when you go into the mission field who your target's going to be. They ended up ministering to what what Steve called uh, graduated orphans. And these are people that grew up as orphans, grew up in orphanages, and now they're adults. And they're dealing with all of the baggage of their past. 
So imagine what that baggage would look like. You'd feel rejected, you'd feel dejected, you'd feel ostracized in life, and they're dealing with all of these. And Steve and Joanne, and along with their two kids, they spent seven years in Ukraine ministering, reaching out, and loving these people that some of them had no one else to love. So a few weeks ago, Steve was here talking to our staff, and he told the story about Sasha. And Sasha was this young man, and he was kind of angry, and he was an atheist and didn't believe in God. And Steve just befriended him and mentored him and loved him for all those, all those years. And then they, they, came, they came back to Winnipeg. And they were in the city of Zaporizhia. And I'm going to tell you where that is in just a moment. And so when the war started, Steve's starting to be concerned about all these young men and women that they had been ministering to. So he sends them, Sasha a message and he says, how are you? And he says, I'm stuck behind enemy lines. And I'll, and I'll show you the picture. Uh, here's, if you look at this, uh, the picture of the Ukraine, or Ukraine, here, there's Zaporizhia, it's in southeast uh, Ukraine. And then uh, you just look a little further over there is Mariupol, which we know what's happening with that. It's been destroyed by, by the Russians. And all that red is all where it's Russian occupied. And what Sasha did, what he had, what, for whatever reason, he had left uh, Zaporizhia and he had gone in, southeast of there into what was called, or what's known as the Mennonite communities of, of Ukraine. And so Steve says, what are you doing hanging out with the Mennonites? You know, people ask me that same question every day. What are you doing hanging out with the Mennonites? I say, I can't help it. They're on my staff. And someone needs to love these people, right? <laughs> Just kidding, people. Relax. And so anyway, he says, what are you doing there? And so he explained why he was there. But he says, now I'm stuck here because as a, as a young Ukrainian, how am I going to get across those lines? I'm not going to be able to do it. And so Steve says, what can we do for you? And he says, I need money. If you give me money, I might be able to get out. So he sends him some money. Steve sends him some money. And he, and he prays with him. And he says, I believe God's going to lead you out. He says, you need to call out to God. You need to pray. So anyway, it's a longer story. But, but Sasha began his journey. He made it through all these checkpoints. Should have been able to do it. I mean, they would have considered a young Ukrainian like him as a, either a soldier or a spy. There's no way he should have made it through. But he made it through and he got into western Ukraine. And, and so then he, they're messaging back and forth, and, and Sasha tells Steve, this has been an absolute miracle. He says, every time I prayed, I got an answer. And so Steve says, wouldn't this be a good time to invite Christ into your life since he's already answering your prayers? And after that encounter, Sasha gave his life to Christ as his Lord and Savior. Why? Because God's love never prevails, and our light, or sorry, never fails and prevails, and our, <laughs> I got those two words mixed up, and, and, and our love should never fail, and if our love never fails, it will prevail. So I want to take a few minutes today, and I want to talk to you about who we're supposed to love in this world. I mean, it might seem obvious, but it's not that obvious, and so in the immortal words of George Thorogood, who do you love? And here it is, I'm going to throw it up. This is what the scripture commands us, the three groups of people we're to love. And I'll prove it to you today. We're to love our brother, we're to love our neighbor, and we're to love our enemy. And our brother is not necessarily your biological brother. Your brother is someone who loves you back, and we'll look at that in a moment. Your neighbor is someone who may not love you back, and your enemy is someone who just outright hates you. And so they're easy to define. So let's start with this first one. The scripture tells us that we're to love our brother. And I want to show you a little passage that is written by John, the Apostle John. Who remembers what he was called? The Apostle of 
Love, you got it. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, it says this. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has, who he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Boy, that's, that's a strong word. He says, look, if you can't love your brother, don't think for a minute you can love God. And if you say you love God and you don't love your brother, I don't believe you. And it's really true. If we can't love our brother, how are we going to love anybody else in this world? That is the starting point, as Scripture defines it. Now, we need to take a moment and talk about who your brother is. See, the brother is someone who is supposed to love you back. It's not talking about only your biological brother. It's your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your aunts, your uncles. It's your family. It's your friends. The people who love you back... The word brother is used in a very broad sense in Scripture. It's the people who are supposed to love you back. And if you can't love them, don't think for a minute you're going to be able to love anybody else. That's what John says. Now, when we look in Scripture, you find out that it's actually hard to love the people who love you back. You know why? You're stuck in this family, and people have warts, and they have failures, and they have faults, and you see them, and you see them up close and personal, and I know there are people who absolutely do not like their family. I understand it, and they say, Pastor Mark, I can't love them. You don't know them. I said, no, but I know you, so I can imagine, right? (laughs) And, And you know, sure, it's hard to love your family, but if we can't love our family, what good are we to the rest of the world? And he says, you can't even love God if you can't love your brother. So we go, we go into the Bible. You go into the very first two brothers in history. Who were they again? Cain, Cain and Abel. And what did Cain do? Remind me. He killed his brother. The first two brothers in the world, and he kills his brother. I'm thinking, God, really? You put this story in the Bible? If I were God, I would have left that one out. I mean, it's not a good start. And then you look at David's kids. We all know about King David. We rarely talk about his kids. Do you know that his son Ammon raped his sister Tamar and then Absalom killed Ammon in retribution? Those aren't good brothers. But you know, it's hard to have brothers. How many of you grew up with a brother? How many grew up with a brother or brothers? Don't ever have brothers. They're the worst. I'm telling you, they go at each other's throat. I grew up in a household where there was two sisters and five brothers. And you know what the miracle is? We managed to grow up with actually out ever killing one another. Now we hurt each other, but no one ever died, which I think was, you know, pretty good. I call that a success. <laughs> you think I'm joking. We wailed on each other. We fought. We, we tussled. We wrestled. We threw stuff at each other. Do you know that one day I actually stabbed my brother in the neck with a pair of scissors? Now, I didn't do it on purpose. You're acting like I do it. I stabbed him, and that's not what happened. We, for whatever reason, we were both after the pair of scissors at the same moment. Don't know why. Scissors are very, you know, rare in our house. And so we're fighting over this pair of scissors, and somehow or another, it, they ended up being stuck in the back of his neck like this. Now I don't know how it happened, but he had a pair of scissors sticking out of the back of his neck. And my dad, like when my dad showed up, he was really mad about that. I, I don't know if you can imagine that. He was like really mad. And I could hardly say it wasn't me, because I'm pretty sure my brother didn't stab himself in the back of the neck with a pair of scissors, although that was what I said he did. And so, you know, he had to go to the hospital, get the scissors out, and get stitched up. And do you know to this day, decades later, we're still best friends. 
He forgave me for stabbing him in the neck with scissors because that's what brothers do, right? You, you forgive one another. We got, we've got to get past this thing. So here's what, what the scripture is telling us that we've, we've got to learn to love our family before we love anybody else. And the family is the laboratory of love. It's the place where we're going to have to learn how to do love and it's a reason we're thrust together in some of the most difficult and awkward situations with everybody's flaws, like I said, and we have to learn how to forgive, and we have to learn how to overcome, we have to learn how to sacrifice for one another. And if we can allow the laboratory of love to do its work, then we can be of some good to the rest of the world. So I want to tell you a little story about this. Uh, Bill Hybels was the pastor of Willow Creek Church in Chicago for many years. And at the time, he was the, it was the biggest church in North America, fastest growing church in North America. We always look to them. I've only heard him preach twice, once here in Winnipeg and once at a conference in the U.S. And when it, I was at the conference in the U.S., it was sort of interesting because he didn't just preach, he did something different. And apparently for the only time ever, he had his wife and his two grown children on stage together. And uh, they were just talking about family life. And they were talking about, you know, how the, the difficulties of being a pastor in your family and getting through the struggles and, you know, the, the, you know, expectations put on you, et cetera, et cetera. And so his 35-year-old daughter tells this story about how when she was a teenager and a young woman, she rebelled against the church and against her parents and against her faith, and she couldn't wait to get out of the house, and she left when she was old enough, and she went off to Berkeley, California, and what her idea was that she was going to go find some enlightenment at Berkeley that was going to be some sort of authentic community that she never had at home with her family and her church only to discover there was nothing authentic or real or genuine about this humanistic university. And all of a sudden, like the prodigal son, she came to her senses and realized that her parents and her family and her church never stopped loving her. And she told the story about how embarrassing she was as a daughter to her father, the pastor of the largest church in North America. And she said, he never once judged me, never once criticized me, never once said to me, what am I going to tell the elders about your behavior? But they just kept the doors open. They just continued to extend love to her. They said, our home is always open to you. And then she said, one day I realized that that really truly was authentic community. With all of their faults and their flaws, though they were not perfect, their love was perfect. And she came back into the fold realizing that her family was the only place that really truly demonstrated love. I remember how moved I was by that. And I thought, you know, sometimes we get so concerned because people, young people leave the church and the only thing that is going to rescue them is the love of God because love never fails, right? I remember when my daughter sitting over there was six years old, when my kids were, were, were little, my daughters, I used to kiss them goodnight every night. And, you know, it's hard for a father not to be affectionate to their little girls. They're so cute and everything. And Boy, they change. And, uh, and, and, you know, and I remember when she was six years old, I kissed her goodnight. And I said to her, so tell me this. When you're 14, are you still going to kiss me goodnight? She said, of course, Papa. But by 11, she was no longer kissing me goodnight anymore. And I said to her, you said you would kiss me when you were 14. She says, I know. And I'm not 14 yet. <laughs> So the first thing is this, the first thing is that we need to love our brother, and that's someone that ostensibly is to love us back. The second thing is we are to love our neighbor. 
And that, of course, the big question is, who is my neighbor, right? So let's read a verse first about that, and then I'll explain that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 46, it says, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. So Jesus says it's not enough to just love people who love you back. Even the sinners, even the tax collectors do that. And your neighbor is the person who may or may not love you back, but you love them anyway. And of course, the big question becomes, who is my neighbor? So we know where that question is answered, and it's in the story of the Good Samaritan. So this lawyer comes by Jesus one day and says to him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says to him, what is your reading of the law? What is the greatest of the commandment? He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your might, all your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, you've answered correct. Go and you shall have eternal life. <laughs> but then the lawyer said, well, well, we'll just tie right here just a moment. Just so I'm clear, who is my neighbor? Right? Isn't that the big question? Like, if we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Who exactly is my neighbor? Like, I know it's the guy who lives next door, but how about that guy uh, three doors down that doesn't mow his grass? Am I supposed to love him? How about the guy at the corner that I don't even know? Am I supposed to love him? So Jesus answers the question of who your neighbor is. So he tells the story, the parable of what we call the Good Samaritan. So it's the story of this Jewish man. He goes down to Jericho. He, He falls among thieves. He gets robbed and laid, wounded, lying in the street. And the first person to go by is a Levite. And the Levite sees him, and he, what does he do? He crosses on the other side of the street. And the next person to come by is a priest. And what does he do? He sees it and crosses by on the other side of the street. Doesn't want to deal with it. Levites and priests. Who are we talking about there? The Levites are the church, and the priests are the pastors. It's talking about you and me. Sorry, we just got indicted in this story. And then who came along was the Samaritan. And we call this story the story of the good Samaritan. And the Jews hated Samaritans. I mean, imagine putting him in this story. The only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan. And so anyway, the Samaritan comes along, finds this man, patches him up, puts him on his animal, takes him to the inn, pays the innkeeper to take care of him, and says, if there's any more owing, I will pay you the rest. Take care of this man. In other words, what did he do to this man? He loved him as Himself, He loved him as his own family. Isn't that what you do for your family? You take care of him, pay the bills? This man was a complete stranger. And he took care of me, loved him as a self. So my definition of who your neighbor is, and I think I'm right about this, your neighbor is not the person who lives down the street. Your neighbor is the person whom your life intersects with. It's the person that you encounter on the road of life. And see, as we go through life, see, you can't love the whole world. You can't say, oh, I love everybody. Well, that's nice. If you say you love everybody, you're probably really saying, I don't love anybody because I don't have to do anything. But who you need to love, your neighbor is the person that your life intersects with. And we're all on the road to life. This guy was just on the road of life and encountered this man wounded and in trouble. And he took care of him. And every day we encounter people on this same basis, on the road of life. So I I preached that sermon on the Good Samaritan in a fuller version one day. That was Sunday. Monday, Kathy and I are on the highway. We're driving down the highway, 
And uh, I'm thinking, this is the road of life. We're literally on a road here. And there's this car in front of us. We're coming up to it. And it pulls out and goes. And it's right, it pulls into the left lane. And it just sits there. You've all had this, right? You've all encountered this where someone goes and sits in that left lane. And they're not passing. They're not letting you by. And I'm stuck. I'm boxed in behind this car. And the car, and I say this only for the detail of the story, was from Saskatchewan. <laughs> and furthermore... It was a woman, no judgment, but it was a woman from Saskatchewan. You just need to know the details of the story. So I'm telling you, I've got a woman from Saskatchewan boxing me in, and so I'm thinking this whole time, I have to love my neighbor. So there's certain things I can't do. I can't go up right behind her and honk my horn. I can't bump her ever so gently off the road and into the ditch. I, I, you just can't do those things because you're not loving your neighbor. So I'm sitting there thinking, look, I love my neighbor, love my neighbor, trying to, trying to get get something to happen here. So I sit there for 10 minutes. Finally, she moves in front and moves into the, the right lane, and I'm passing her, and I'm thinking, now how do I express my disappointment and at the same time express my love for her? And then I knew what I had to do. So as I drove by, she looked at me, and I looked back at her, and I put my biggest, most loving smile on my face and went, and it, was, it said both things. It was like, I love you, but you're an idiot, right? That, that, that's sort of what that said. So, so I, I, I smiled at her and I went, like what? Like what? What are you doing? She takes her hands off the wheel and flips me the bird. Flips me the bird. So I'm thinking, now how do I respond to this? Now I've, I'm clearly encountering her. And I knew exactly what to do. And in an uncommon act of love, I blew her a kiss. <laughs> I'm not sure why I did that. I didn't really think about it. I thought, I love, I love this woman from Saskatchewan. And I'm going to show her and I'm going to blow her a kiss. She took both hands off the wheel and flipped me double birds. <laughs> double birds. Double barrels. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this loving my neighbor is harder than I thought. <laughs> See, who is your neighbor? Someone who may not love you back. Right? So anyway, I'm, I'm, on this, I'm on this journey of self-discovery to learn to love my neighbor. And a few days later, I'm in the city. I'm parked downtown. I'm coming out of Winnipeg Square. My car is parked on the street. And I walk out of Winnipeg Square. And there's a man and a woman, both inebriated, having this battle royal right on the sidewalk. And she's wailing on him. She's wailing on him. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to love my neighbor in this moment. You know, she's just hitting him. For, you know, if it was him beating up her, I would have broken that fight up in a moment. But she's beating on him. I got her name later. I think it was Amber Heard. Her name. <laughs> <laughs> Kidding people. <laughs> So, she's, so she's, she's, she's wailing on him. And I'll tell you, everything within me wanted to walk on the other side of the street. I mean, you, you know, do you want to get involved with that? I, thought, I want to go on the other side of the street. I don't want to be the Levite. I want to be the Good Samaritan. And then she turns around and starts yelling at me. And she says, he stole my money. Call the police. He stole my money. Call the police. So now I knew I needed to engage. So I pulled up my cell phone and phoned 911. While I'm waiting for the police and I'm watching this to make sure that something really terrible doesn't happen, I spot her purse. It's lying on the other side of the curb. So I go and I, and I pick up her purse. And I'm walking over there with the purse. And I, and I, I said to her, I said, 
uh, I've got the police on you on the line right here, and here's your purse. She grabbed the purse from me and said, give me that, and swung it at me, trying to hit me with it, and said, leave me and my boyfriend alone. Put her arm around him and walk down the street. And, and, and then the police asked me, what's going on? I said, I've neutralized the situation here. And, and you know, here's, here's my point. Is that you, you're, they're not always going to love you back. You do your best, and you try to love your neighbor, and just because you have a few bad experiences, you're going to have good experiences. Because here's what I want to say in this message, and maybe if you get everything else, don't miss this. I believe loving your neighbor is the key to success in life. What would happen if all of us started to express love to the people we encountered every day? Every day in restaurants and in the store and on the street and wherever we encounter people when we love, instead of treating them with with crankiness and anger and offense, what if we just tried to love these people and give them a little bit of respect and dignity? Could we, would we change the world? What if you were a salesman and you started treating every customer and instead of worrying about making the sale, make sure you love that person enough to make sure that they get whatever it is they really need to help them more than to help yourself. Would you end up being successful still? You would. What if you're a businessman and your goal was to put the customer or client's needs ahead of your own? I'm telling you, this would be the key to success and it would change the world. Maybe not the whole world, but the world around you. So I have a great story about this. So a number of years ago, I was taking my family skiing. We were driving out west. We were in our, our notorious high mileage, 400,000 kilometer van. Why I kept driving across the nation with this, I do not know, but I kept doing it. We had it all, we had our, all our kids, we had all our ski gear, and we were heading out to Banff to go skiing. And we got as far as Medicine Hat, Alberta, and the transmission went out on it. And so I thought, now we're finished. I mean, we've got no vehicle to get out there. Uh, how am I going to have to get this thing fixed? How much money do I want to spend on this old vehicle? I thought, I am so hooped here. But anyway, I found a transmission shop. We limped over there. He looked at it. He said, the thing is shot. He says, let me see if I can help you out. He makes one phone call to the wrecker. He says, the wrecker's got that transmission for that vehicle for 300 bucks. And he says, I'll, I'll, put, I'll swap it out for you. He thought for a moment. He said... I'll do it for $500. I thought, $500? Anybody who's ever had a transmission done knows it's not $500. It's a 10, 12-hour job. You're not getting it for 500 bucks. No way, no how. And I thought, I can't believe he's doing this for $500. Then he made another call to the car rental place, and they sent over a van. We threw all our stuff in the van. We went on to our ski trip. We never missed a day. And then we drove back from our ski trip in, the, in a rental van to Medicine Hat, and I was worried I thought, I'm afraid that 500 has turned into something else. So we get in there, we're picking up the van, it's all ready to go. He says, it's running great. I said, how much is the bill? And it was $800, $300. And do you know that in Alberta, they don't even charge you sales tax? Alberta's great, you should go to Alberta. And <laughs> for your car repairs, stay here to come to this church. And so, so anyway, so I paid the man. I had a question for him, but I didn't want to ask it until after I'd paid him and got my keys. And I said, I have a question for you. You and I both know you can't fix a transmission for $500. I said, why did you do that for me? He says, I'll tell you why I did that for you. He said, you came in here, you were on a family vacation, you were from out of town, and I asked myself this question. If this were me, and I was stuck in some city not of my own, and I had lost my transmission, and I was on a family holiday, How would I want to be treated? 
and I decided to treat you how I would want to be treated. How many of you have ever heard of this? It's in the scripture. It's called the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's the golden rule. And what else he did? I'll tell you what he did. He loved his neighbor as himself. I couldn't believe it. I was getting out of this thing. And then on, behind his counter were all these thank you cards from happy customers. And I knew right away that this was a man who knew how to live out this principle. And he was a successful shop because love never fails. And what would our world look like if we all started doing this same thing and loving our neighbor as ourselves? So the first thing is to love our brother. The second thing is to love our neighbor. The last and final thing is to love our enemy. This one's kind of interesting. I'll only spend a moment on it. But here's what the scripture says, just in case you're thinking I'm making this stuff up. It's from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Do you know that Jesus was the only religious leader in history who told his followers to love their enemy? Nobody tells them to do that. Nobody lives like that. Nobody believes in that. We want to hate our enemy. We want to kill our enemy. Our enemy is the person who hates you. And why would you want to love them? Why would you want to do good to them? But the Sermon on the Mount tells us this counterintuitive principle that we are to love them because if we will love them, it will actually do something transformative in their life. And I'll tell you something. I mean, it's hard to love your brother. It's even harder to love your neighbor. The hardest thing you'll ever do is love your enemy. Hardest thing you'll ever do. And I've told you many stories about that, so I'm not going to end with that. I want to end with another story to sort of wrap up the whole series. But it really will capture everything that I've just talked about here. So I have this pastor friend in the city here, and uh, he has older married children like I do. And uh, we were over for dinner one day, and he, t- and he told us the story of his daughter. About six months before that point, uh, what happened, there she was. She was married, happily married. She had two kids. And one day, her husband just up and left. He just left. Not only did he leave her and the kids, he actually left the city. And I don't know what all the details of, of it, the story are. It's not really important. But he just left, and he was gone. He'd been gone for six months. And, uh, and he, he said that she had decided that she was going to stand for her husband. And she was going to love this guy, even though he was clearly not loving her back. And, and in fact, he was quite angry with her. And so he pulled out their picture. Kathy and I were sitting at the dinner table with them. We were over there one night. And uh, they pulled out the picture of happier days of his daughter, their son-in-law, and their, their two grandchildren. And there was clear distress in their hearts. And they, and they said to us, you know, even people in our church are saying to her, just get on with your life. Move on. Divorce him. Move on. Find another husband. Get on with your life. You can't just continue to hold on to this. And she decided that she was going to love this guy because she married him and made a commitment to him and a covenant that she would love him uh, till death do they part. And she's decided that she's going to stand for him and believe for him to come back no matter what they've been through. And she says, and then he said, you know, there's very few people that will stand with them and believe that with them. And Kathy and I said, we'll, we'll believe that with you. We'll, we'll stand with them. 
And so the four of us held hands that night at the dinner table and we prayed and we prayed and asked God to restore this, that marriage and made this commitment to stand for them. And of course, the parents prayed a whole lot more than, than we did, but, but that carried on. So that was three years ago. And I was so proud of her because she never gave up that commitment. Even though he was gone, three and a half years, he was gone. Three and a half years ignoring her and connecting with the kids once in a while, but pretty much ignoring her. And she never gave up. She never stopped loving him. She never stopped standing. She never stopped believing God in faith, a big leap of faith. She never lost her hope that, that her husband would one day return. And then in what most people would call a coincidence, but it's hardly a coincidence, he ends up running into a family friend at down east where he was living. And this family friend invites him to, to, uh, to him to church, and he goes and invites him over for lunch, and he goes. And again, the next week, church and lunch, church and lunch, week after week after week after week, and then about six weeks went by, and God touched him. And all of a sudden, he had an epiphany that things were better the way they were than they are now, and he knew what he needed to do. And God had changed his heart, and he phoned up his wife, and he said, I, I got to ask you a question. Can I come home? And he asked to be forgiven and to come home. And you guess what she said? No way. <laughs> no, no, no. And she said, of course you can come. And they had lots of stuff to work out. And they got all of those things worked out. And they're on their way. And the family is back together. And she says she feels like she's married to a brand new man. Because God does miracles. That faith always prevails because faith never fails. Love always prevails because love never fails. That's how we change this world, through this little old thing called love. Let me show you a more excellent way, and the more excellent way is love. Let's stand together. All right, we're going to take a moment like we always do. I'd ask you all to close your eyes and and bow your heads just for a moment. Because I know that in a room this size, there will be people who have never invited the Lord into their life to be their personal Savior. And he did this incredible thing for you 2,000 years ago. He loved you before you were born, before you were but a twinkle in your father's eye. He went to the cross and died for you. And if you've never accepted that love of Christ, what better time than today on Mother's Day? For you to make a decision to follow him. I'm not asking you, have you been to church, been baptized as an infant? That may be all so. But have you made that definitive decision to be a follower of Jesus? Have you said yes to the love that he has expressed to you from the cross? And if you have not done that, I want to give you an opportunity today. If you're not sure if you were to die, if you go to heaven, that's who I'm talking to. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, if you'd like to make that decision today, Nobody's looking around. I want you to just hold your hand up so I can see it. Just take a moment. Thank you at the very back. Thank you on the side. Thank you on the other side. Anybody else want to join these folks? Not calling you forward, not singling you out. Maybe there's some people that knew him once in the past and you have slipped away. Why don't you raise your hand as well and make that decision to come back to him? All right, fantastic. You can all lower your hands. Let's all pray together because I said I wouldn't single anybody out. Can you pray with me? Lord Jesus... I thank you for the work of the cross, that you loved me so much that you died on that cross. You shed your blood for my sake. And then you rose from the dead, and you forever lived to be my Lord. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. 
Today, I'm a new creation in Christ. And I have received the love of God. The unconditional love of God. And help me to spread this love to a world that's in such desperate need. Let me be an ambassador of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give him a shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app. 